Thanks very much, Rox. Uh, welcome, everyone. Welcome to the part two in the series, Elijah the Revivalist. You know, um, one of the things that we uh, long to do is allow, just we were talking about prayer before, which um, I'm very passionate about as well, but also the Word of God. We really want to get the Word of God into people's hearts at North Church. And uh, one of the ways that we're encouraging that to happen at the moment, you've already heard mention the uh, study book relation to the Bible studies, online Bible studies. But also, can I suggest, grab one anyway, even if you're not on the online Bible study, and use it in your personal quiet times. You know, And so you can actually be meditating on these passages as you journey through the series, allowing God to speak to you further through the Word of God. I'm, I'm convinced that uh, synergy takes place. When you listen to the preached Word of God, you meditate on it further in your personal quiet times. You, you join an online Bible study, discuss it, and finally you try and live it. You want to apply it to your ministry or to your life. The synergy of those four things really brings transformation. And uh, I've certainly seen that happen in my life at different times, and I've seen it happen in uh, some of my churches where there's been, um, in some cases, in goodness, in England, there was 27 Bible study groups, and they would follow what we were doing on the Sunday morning, all of them. And uh, so it was, I believe there's something about that, that synergy that, helps us really grow. Well, today, my topic is the battle of the gods. The battle of the gods. Um, and this is probably the most dramatic portion of Elijah's life. Uh, let's have a look at the setting where it took place, uh, the image here of Mount Carmel. So you can see the actual mountain there, the plateau and the mountain. It's very likely it was on top of the plateau there that you can see. And you can see the map there where it's situated, not far from the Mediterranean Sea there. And uh, just from a, uh, another thing that might be helpful for you, it's um, Israel, it, the, these days it's in northwestern Israel. At the time, it's right on the border between Israel and Phoenicia. And Phoenicia, of course, it plays uh, an influential role in these stories. Um, let's have a look at the uh, first passage here. Uh, Kings, 1 Kings 18.16. It starts with, so Obadiah. Obadiah is an official working for King Ahab, but it's actually, um, quietly, he's a believer of the one true God, Yahweh. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? Is that you, you troubler of Israel? That's the King Ahab speaking. King Ahab is, is reported as being in the Scriptures uh, the seventh king of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's also reported to be the worst king up until that point from God's perspective. What does he say to Elijah? You troubler of Israel. You know, isn't it interesting? Uh, <laughs> it brings accusation to God's prophet, and of course, actually, he is not a good person, far from it. But can I suggest that this actually matches what we see in the way the evil one, the way Satan operates? Look at this here in Revelation 12.10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So Satan there is being referred to. And what's his title in this? The accuser. The accuser of the brothers and sisters. No surprise that Ahab, who's deeply influenced by the evil one, 
would accuse God's prophets. I immediately see an application here, friends. Number one, people that Satan is manipulating will often bring accusation against God's leaders. People that Satan is manipulating will often bring accusation against God's leaders. Now, in um, a lot of the evangelical circles that I've mixed over the years, I've occasionally heard this comment that when accusation is brought against you, you don't defend yourself. You don't say anything. But is that based in the Bible? I don't think so. Let's have a look at what Elijah does. Kings 18.18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Notice his response? This is what I suggest he did. Number two, when falsely accused, expose the lie and reveal the truth. That's how we should respond. When falsely accused, expose the lie and reveal the truth. Passage goes on and says this, 1 Kings 18, 19. Elijah's calling the shots here. He's speaking. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. That's how involved Jezebel was with the false prophets. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. So he's addressing the crowds. He's addressing the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. They say nothing. Uh, You could say they're trying to stay situated on the fence. They're not prepared to take sides. Um, You know, too often uh, we Christians can also say nothing. We can too easily be, I don't know, influenced by the majority. What was his question to the crowd? How long will you waver between two opinions? Here the prophet challenges the people about where they stand, but they say nothing. Can I suggest this, friends? Number three, don't follow the crowd, but stand alone for what is right. Don't follow the crowd, but stand alone for what is right. Because that's what we see Elijah doing. At the moment, it seems as if he's standing alone for what is right. Now, some of you uh, listen to the Australian Christian Lobby Group stuff all the time, and you're much more on the ball with the stuff than what I am, but I occasionally watch them as well, and I think there's an important bill at the moment that needs addressing. Let let me just mention this. Pop up this uh, image here. The Albanese government is proposing the Combating Misinformation and Disinformation Bill which would see the government define what truth is and give power to the Australian Communications and Media Authority, ACMA, and online platforms, META, YouTube, they will enforce it. The interesting thing is the government and mainstream media will be exempt from the rules of the bill. You know, um, the ACL at the moment, Australian Christian Lobby Group, if you go on their website, you can sign a petition against this. I'm, I'm planning to. You've got to do it fairly soon. It's about the finishes the 8th of August, the time that bill will go through, potentially go through. My preaching, for instance, every chance 
YouTube would take some of my sermons down because I address stuff that the government's not going to always agree. You know, I, I personally think in a country that would suggest that, you know, we live in a democracy, I would suggest that actually we need to take action on this because it seems a very undemocratic thing to be doing. More like a socialist government, in my opinion. It won't be just my sermons, it'll be a lot of other evangelical preachers as well. Let's have a look at the next passage, 1 Kings 18.22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us, let them choose one for themselves and let them cut into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of the Lord your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. I will say at least for the crowd, they're open-minded enough to say, okay, let's, let's see who really is God. Um, was Elijah the only prophet left? Uh, we actually... He, uh, Obadiah told him there's a hundred other prophets that I've actually hidden 50 in two different caves, two different caves, 100 in total. Uh, so Elijah must have known there are other prophets. Why would he say this? I, you know what I, I think? I think Elijah is deliberately saying this because he knows Jezebel is systematically killing God's prophets. And I think he's taking the heat off them by saying, oh, I'm the only one left. Well, if she's not going to keep searching for other prophets if he's saying he's the only one. You know, that's, that's my opinion anyway. Can't really prove that. Now, all of those prophets of Baal and Asherah, 850 in total. It's a lot of other prophets. And you've got this one prophet, Elijah, standing publicly, because the other prophets are hidden away, standing publicly against them. Overwhelming, isn't it, really, when you think about it? And you've got King Ahab, who commands an army, who could easily command that the army go kill Elijah now. And yet with this incredible boldness, Elijah just doesn't seem to be intimidated at all. Remarkable. But again, here we're learning a lesson from him, aren't we? Can I suggest this? Number four, don't be intimidated by overwhelming opposition. Don't be intimidated by overwhelming opposition. You know, um, I think too often uh, we here in Australia, um, I think we're feeling increasingly oppressed by social media and by the government to be kind of quiet about our Christian beliefs. Um, and I, we can feel, I think, that the church is declining so much in this nation of Australia that we're, we're losing the battle. But I don't know that that's true. You know, facts are always the friends of Christians. Know the facts. Very hard to know the truth unless you have the facts. Let me give you some. Census, 2021. Australian population, uh, over 25 million at the time. Hinduism, about 2.7% of the population. It grew a little bit between the two censuses, over half a million. Buddhism remained completely plateaued over the period. 2.4% was the previous census as well, a little over half a million also. Islam grew a bit, 3.2% now, uh, over 800,000. No religion. This is the vast change. Massive jump, about 8%, perhaps up to 9% increase. Now nine, nearly, nearly 10 million. 
38.9% of the population. Big change there. Um, Christianity, a big drop, about 11%, about 11 million people and about 43.9% of the population. Change there. The big shift was between non-religion and Christianity. A lot of people stopped ticking one of the Christian boxes and instead ticked non-religion. Non-religion, by the way, it's quite broad. Um, Non-religion Satanists tick it. Those involved in the occult tick it. Like there's a whole bunch of people who tick that one because they don't have their own box. You see what I mean? They're not going to tick Hinduism, Buddhism, Satanism. You know, Satanists is going to tick non-religion. Uh, when I further analyse some of it, because you can actually dig a bit deeper into that, there's a lot of people that tick that box that wouldn't necessarily be unspiritual. Anyway. But, uh, okay, that's still a big population of Christians. What, I know you're, not going to, you're going to be thinking, well, there's not 11 million Christians who turn up to church every Sunday. Well, probably a more accurate picture is the evangelicals. That's down the bottom there. Evangelical populace, probably about 12%. It's a difficult one to dig into that one. But evangelicals at about 3 million... That's still a substantial number of what are probably the genuine Christians. That's still a lot of people. I think three million people in a nation that doesn't have a huge population, that's certainly enough to affect things positively. Certainly enough, I would think. More than 10% of the population. Can't tell me that can't change things. Let me go a little further. This is the NCLS research. This Christian thorough research happens every census also, their research indicates 21% of Australians still claim to attend church services regularly at least once a month or more. 13% of Australians weekly, a weekly church service or more. Now that's an interesting stat. It tells me something. Because that's actually been the case for a long decades, a long time. In other words, what we're seeing in the census is people who used to tick the boxes, uh, I'm Catholic, I'm Orthodox, um, I'm Baptist, but I don't actually go to church, haven't been for years, but I tick the box. It's people like that that have stopped ticking the boxes. What I'm saying is the church attendance hasn't changed. So you're seeing this big decline in those who are ticking the box that I'm a Christian, but actual church attendance is not changing. It's staying at about the same percentage, which means actually it's increasing because the population's increasing. Do you find that interesting? So actually, that's actually very positive, isn't it? Um, and by the way, there's also, on top of that 21% who claim to go to church regularly, there's another 12% who claim to go occasionally, at least once a year or a few times a year. Now, I want to suggest that it's that group that are actually very open to Christ, but not attending regularly, backslidden or whatever, they're people we need to reach. We need to draw them back into the fold or possibly get them properly saved. Mm. Let's move on. 1 Kings 18, 26. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. You get the idea? He's taunting them. He's having a laugh at them. In fact, uh, that where, where the NIV translates it busy, um, for instance, the New Living Translation uh, says, 
He might be relieving himself. It actually means busy on the toilet. You know, so he's really having a laugh at these guys. It goes on to say this. 1828, so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. God didn't allow the demonic spirits to do anything, the one true God, Yahweh. No answer, despite their frantic worship. Get a picture of this. Just remember, sharing last week, this has become mainstream in Israel. You look at their form of worship. Dancing around the altar, frantic, slashing their arms, their legs with, with knives, with spears, bloods flowing everywhere, mainstream worship in northern kingdom of Israel. Very different to King David, eh? What a change. <sighs> Let's have a look here. At, um, I mentioned the Baal last week. Let's have a look at the Asherah poles here for a moment. So this is, the, this is the female counterpart of Baal. They would dance around those big poles, Asherah poles, or the other smaller ones there that we have an image of. And that was the expression of the worship, dancing around those things, slashing themselves blood flowing as they did that. A grotesque form of worship and yet mainstream in Israel at this time. Can I suggest this, number five? Don't allow the sinful practices of the world to become ours even if they are widely accepted. Don't allow the sinful practices of the world to become ours even if they're widely accepted. The world influences the church far too much. 1 Kings 18.32, with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord and dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sifts of water. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Now, skeptics will say, having read a passage like that, they'll say, well, this shows the narrative can't be accurate. Considering it's a time of drought, I mean, they're not going to be wasting all of that water on this altar. No way they would do that. But as Charles Swindle very reasonably points out, the foothills of Mount Carmel are the Mediterranean Sea. There's no reason this water couldn't have been salt water. And so it's not a waste of drinking water necessarily at all. So often skeptics don't dig into the actual text. They read other skeptics. That's why they come to actually, you know, wrong conclusions very easily because of that. Goes on and says in verse 36, At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so these people will know you, that you, O Lord, are God. And that you are turning their hearts back again. You can hear his plea here. His heart for the nation. He wants God to demonstrate his reality. Why? So the people of Israel might turn back to him. 
And uh, friends, quite frankly, you know, you and I have that role too, to help the people of Melbourne to turn back to the living God. And of course that happens, by the way. Israel returns. Great numbers of people see the reality of the one true God and they reject Baal and they turn back to Yahweh. Elijah's pivotal in that role. But it's our role too. Number six, endeavor to turn people back to God. It's our role, friends. Number six, endeavor to turn people back to God. You know, and I think, um, you know, uh, Rox was mentioned earlier, the the power of prayer. And uh, I'm convinced that revival prayer meetings shift the atmosphere of a city. You know, I I shared in one of the early morning prayer meetings this week um, an account that I was listening to uh, from probably one of the world's best experts, James Irwin Orr. Uh, This chap, the late late Reverend Orr, he um, is talking in this particular message about a great revival in Australia, the 1850s revival. Let me tell you a little bit about it. Um, newspapers were reporting in the Sydney newspapers and Melbourne newspapers reporting that there was a revival, spiritual revival in the United States in uh, 1857. Those reports were coming out. And now Aussie newspapers were a bit sceptical and negative about it, to be honest, initially, but it didn't affect the Christians. The Christians of Australia were like, whoa, that sounds amazing. They started to gather together for prayer. What, what was going on through the country? Saturday night prayer meetings were happening right across the country and the, the prayer meetings were basically twofold. God, bring revival into my heart. God, bring revival to the nation. Powerful prayer meetings happening all over the country. Well, um, in the journey of this, um, the papers shifted a little bit. In fact, the Sydney papers started reporting, um, to, to quote it here, um, that there is, there is a, a swell of revival prayer happening over our city of Sydney. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is interesting. Um, God released his fire, his power descended, and it descended first. Rox was mentioning Melbourne. It descended first in part of Melbourne. Um, and uh, the... the uh, the move of God was such that um, it deeply impacted um, that particular town. It was Brighton initially. People of Brighton were deeply affected. God moved in power and then it spread to Melbourne proper and suddenly Melbourne was in revival, in the throes of revival. Now, what did it look like? Well, people were coming to church in great numbers, but the church buildings couldn't hold them. And so they opened all the theatres. The Theatre Royal, for instance, in the heart of Melbourne, um, that had an aggregate total of 50,000 people over 12 meetings. Now, to give you an idea, Melbourne's population at the time was just 91,000 people. So those sort of attendances were overwhelming. People were meeting to hear the preached word. People were meeting for prayer and God was moving. People were getting saved in great numbers. It continued to spread. It hit Sydney. Sydney experienced revival down to Hobart, Hobart experienced revival. Pre- preceding the revival there, one of the ministers 
had a week of revival prayer meetings and then the fire of God fell on Hobart. Wonderful move of God. To give you actual statistics, for instance, the Methodist movement in one year, their formal membership doubled in just 12 months. Wonderful, sorry, grew by 50% in just that 12-month period. Um, in, in South Australia, which is a pretty small population at that time in South Australia, one of the towns there, one of the ministers in the towns, he sees 500 people saved in just three months. In what, you know, a, tiny, a little town, must have been the whole town got saved, you know. Um, wonderful moves of God. It spread to the gold fields. Ballarat, Bendigo experienced wonderful revivals. And it seemed in Australia at the time, that there was this enormous prosperity because of the gold being found and this enormous spiritual awakening that was going on. It just seemed people were being blessed in the country of Australia. Over the seven, period, seven years of that revival, every single denomination grew substantially. I'll mention one other guy. Um, this chap was called William Taylor, but nicknamed Californian Taylor. He was an evangelist from America. He arrived in '63. And uh, you might say he reaped the wonderful move, he reaped the results of a wonderful move of God. Tens of thousands of people came to faith in Christ under his preaching. Wonderful move of God. Now, friends, if God can move in revival power back in the 1850s, he can do it again. And Rox is quite right in pointing out Melbourne has been the center point for the start of a revival on occasion. In 1902, it was as well with the visit of R.A. Torrey. My point again, number six, endeavour to turn people back to God. And, you know, one of the ways we can do this is not only by speaking to them about the reality of Jesus, but it's also prayer. And we have a revival prayer meeting coming up. There's flyers there on the back table. They look like this. Maroondah City Church has hosted these before. Interdenominational, there'll be several churches represented. I've been at them before. Great opportunity this Saturday. Come along, let's seek the Lord for revival. If these things spread throughout the city of Melbourne, I'm convinced we would see a move of God. Make it a priority. 5th of August, 2 till 4.30 next Saturday. Grab a flyer if you've forgotten those details already. 1 Kings 18.38 says this, then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal! Don't let any one of them get away! They seized them and Elijah had brought them down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. 850 prophets. And you might say, oh, gee, that's a, bit, that's a bit aggressive. Well, you've got to remember that Jezebel is systematically killing off the prophets of God. Without capital punishment, how on earth is that ever going to stop? The nation turned back to God. The demonstration is such, you see, you read very little about Baal anymore. The northern kingdom come to realize the true God is actually Yahweh. <clears throat> Elijah goes off to pray and then 41 to 46 records how then he seeks the Lord in prayer and um, only then do the rains come after the false worship, the false prophets are dealt with. Can I suggest widespread idolatry affects the morality, the economy 
and I believe even the weather of a nation or of a city. I know you could probably think, um, yeah, but I, Lee, I don't know that idols are really a problem in a modern city like Melbourne, are they? Just to give you a little bit of a, just a couple of illustrations here. When I was in India, might be a little more predictable in India, but I remember people coming forward and talking about demonic activity in their world. And um, I would share the gospel with them. But before um, leading them to Christ, often what I would endeavour to do is also find out about the Hindu gods in their world. And they would quite actively renounce those gods and promise to smash them or throw them out when they got home. That was part of the process of the journey of coming to faith in the Lord. Um, now, that might be a bit more predictable, but what about in the West? Some of you listen to a guy called Ray Comfort. He's a, an evangelist uh, based in New Zealand originally and these days in, um, in America. One of the things that Ray Comfort uh, does in one of his many stories talks about um, his preaching times down the heart of um, one of the cities in New Zealand and um, he used to stand, he's a short fellow, <laughs> he'd stand up on a little stepladder and he'd preach the word. And uh, there was another chap actually there called the wizard who was quite occultic, but he'd do something similar. But it was great, Ray Comfort said, we were kind of friendly enemies because we used to attract the crowd. You know? <laughs> and, uh, anyway, Ray Comfort said on one of those occasions, two girls came up to him and said to him, um, Ray, we're, um, they were very sheepish about it. We're having trouble with the devil. And he said, you don't need to be, you don't need to kind of be embarrassed about this. Look, I'm, th- th- I understand the devil's very real. You know, here's my card. Come and meet with me in the office. I'm very happy to talk about this with you, pray with you. And he just said one of the girls was about to leave and he said, and that necklace you're wearing, I know it, you, it probably just looks like a fairy or something cute. I think that's a fertility god. I'd get rid of that. Well, they didn't make an appointment, but a few weeks later, they just turned up out of nowhere, very distressed. And um, as Ray's talking with them, suddenly one of the girls runs to the window. It's, it's up a few flights, and it's about to jump out of the balcony, commit suicide. Ray manages to chase after after, grabs her by the legs and stops her going over the edge, pulls her back in, and he sees her hand is clenching something. So tightly, like its hand looks white, you know, like all the blood's drawn, drained out of it. She's holding this thing so tight. As he opens up her hand, it's this little fertility god. Ray gets it out of her hand, grabs a hammer out of his office, and strikes it. She's metres away from him by this time with the other girl. Every time he hits it, she screams in pain as if he's hitting her. This little attachment, this little image had a demonic reality associated with it and it was affecting this girl. So the reality of these little idols in a modern city, they're just as effective here as what they might be in a country that might worship all manner of different gods. And, and, we, you know, and there can be subtle things. There can be things that you're, you know... Um, inadvertently buy. I remember someone gave us, um, as a present, a bull, a colourful big bull. And um, they're very attractive, actually. 
and it had a slot where you put money in it. It's kind of a prosperity bull, you know. It's uh, so it wasn't a piggy bank; it was a bully bank. And um, it, you know, we we just had that kind of in our, I think it was in our kitchen or our lounge, just sitting there for a while. And when I was reading this passage one day, I felt the Lord tap me on the shoulder and said, "Get rid of that thing." So I did. I actually smashed it publicly at church because it was associated, related to a message. Um, but you see, of course, the bull was a symbol of Baal. And this was supposed to be a prosperity bull, you know. And we can inadvertently have things in our home that actually have demonic attachment. I would suggest be very prayerful this week. Ask God, is there anything in my house? I hope no one has a Ouija board. I hope no one's got books about the occult. I don't mean a Christian book that it's exposing it, but I mean a demonic book about the occult. What have you got in your house? Are there any symbols or images that actually might not be of God? Be prayerful about this. Let me um, make it just come to life a little bit more. I'm going to quote here from ex-Satanist priest uh, John Ramirez. I'll say a bit more about him in a moment. In one of his documentaries, he walks into a, a big store in America. It's a shop that sold all manner of sculptures, busts, models, ornaments, effigies, including a figurine of Jezebel. Because he used to be a Satanist priest, he said, now I know what a lot of people don't know. I know that every one of these statues, every one of these pieces of jewellery, there's a back room here, and I know that voodoo and witchcraft is practised over every one of these things that are sold, and the, the group invoke demonic spirits to attach themselves to this idol. And as he put it, People don't realise this, but they're walking out of the store and they're taking a demon home. My point is this, number seven, remove all idols from your life. Number seven, remove all idols from your life. Deuteronomy 7.25 says this, the images of their gods you are to burn with fire, do not covet the silver and gold on them. Do not take it for yourselves or you will be ensnared by it. For it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house or you like it will be set apart for destruction. Utterly abhor and detest it for it is set apart for destruction. You know, these seemingly insignificant little items or idols, they can affect your health, your emotional well-being, leading to depression or suicide. They can affect your prosperity. Be prayerful about it. Do pray into this over the next week or two. Is there anything in your house or in your workplace? In your school locker. Let's have a recap of what we've covered today. Number one, people that Satan is manipulating will often bring accusation against God's leaders. Two, when falsely accused, expose the lie and reveal the truth. Three, don't follow the crowd but stand alone for what is right. Four, don't be intimidated by overwhelming opposition. And to the next slide, Do not allow sinful practices of the world to become ours, even if they're widely accepted. Six, endeavor to turn people back to God. And seven, remove all idols from your life. 
Let me finish with this uh, final story. It just brings the reality of the spiritual realm into place. And again, this is a story from a modern city, the modern city of New York. I'm going to share with you the story of John Ramirez. I'll give you a chance to um, check out some details about how to uh, find him online in a moment. Let me tell you his story, though. He grew up as a little kid in the Bronx of New York, and, mate, it was tough. <laughs> they didn't have much money. They were very, very poor, and uh, it was a violent place. He saw a, a dude shot in front of him as a little kid, and that went on as he grew up. Very violent place. Uh, his dad, his dad's side of the family, they were all warlocks and witches. He would uh, see his dad go off into a room, which was kind of his place of worship, and he'd be in there for hours, and he would feel a sense of evil come over the house after his dad had been in that room for a while. He didn't like his dad at all. He hated the fact that his dad used to bash up his mother regularly. He hated the fact that his dad never had a kind word to say to him. Well, when he was 10 years of age, he went through a ceremony. And in that ceremony, five demonic powers were invoked to become a part of this little boy's life. He said, it felt like a wet blanket went over me and my own personality changed. He said, from this point, I never took any notice of my mother and father anymore. I consulted with the evil spirits or I talked with the high-ranking Satanists. I would go to Satanist church. And when I, he says, go to Satanist church, it's quite different to what uh, a church service might come to in your mind. We'd arrive at 7 o'clock at night. It would finish at 5 o'clock in the morning. It went all night. And I was learning the arts, being trained in the arts. Um, started high school. I, I knew I had powers. Kids were scared of me. I hated my father. I wanted him dead. When I was 13, out of nowhere, a woman, a random woman, shot him in the face. By this time, he had advanced so much that Satan himself appeared to him and said, I have taken out the old to replace him with the new, meaning me. Well, this lad kept on developing his powers. By the time he was a young adult, he, um, he said, I had a beautiful car, I had lots of beautiful women, and I had lots of beautiful money. How did he make his money? Well, he's made his money through curses. Give him $10,000 and he would curse someone and they would die. No trace, no, you know, arrange a murder, mate. It's not going to be traced back to you. It's a curse. He would buy 21 black candles. He needed a picture of the person, a bit of other stuff, a coffin. He would conduct a series of ceremonies and consistently that person would die. That's how he made his money. Well, one day, um, there was a particular uh, friend of his who wanted a woman dead. He, the usual contract was drawn up, and he said, because you're a friend, I'll do you a discount. 30% off, 7,000. And, and the contract was signed and so forth, and the, and the woman was leaving, and, and she just turned around and said, oh, and by the way, um, the woman I want you to curse, she's a, she's a Christian. He said, oh, Really? Oh, really? Well, you know, I, I like to. I like to um, show 
my power over Christians. I'll do it for free for you, for free. Well, he did the usual ceremony. 21 days passed and she hadn't died. A month passed. There'd been no effect upon her. He was concerned because he'd got a reputation to look after here, man. You know, so he, he prayed. Satan appeared to him. And this is what's happening by this time. Satan would appear to him and even call him my son. He would call Satan daddy. Well, Satan appears and said, you cannot touch this one. For God has told me we cannot touch this one. He's shocked and he kind of asks the question. Satan just repeats himself and goes. And he's thinking to himself, what is going on here? What God? Because his understanding was Satan had all the power and the Christians were very mistaken. Well, this got him questioning things. And one night, in a moment of, I guess, wondering what is going on, he senses a voice. And the voice said this, I am coming soon. What are you going to do for me? He said, I knew all the demonic voices, he said. Principalities and powers, I knew pretty much how the whole world was broken up under demonic strategies, which powers worked where and so on. I knew the voices. I didn't know this voice. Yes, you've guessed it. It was Jesus. Jesus was speaking. He said that night he had a, uh, he didn't, didn't know what it was. It was either his spirit left his body or it was a vision. He's, he's still not sure to this day. That night he suddenly found himself on this incredibly fast train in this vision or whatever it was, going much, much faster than a normal train. And suddenly it stops, the doors open, he steps out and he's hit with this incredible heat. And there's this stench. And then he hears this shrieking and this whining, something like humans and animals, the sort of noise they might make if they were being killed. And then he realised, oh, my goodness, I'm in hell. I'm in hell. And then Satan appears and says to him, you have betrayed me. I have given you power. I have given you respect. You have betrayed me. And he says, oh, I, I, I haven't, Daddy. I haven't. I, I'm just confused. I, I, haven't, I haven't betrayed you. And then Satan lunges at him as if he's going to kill him. And then suddenly, this bright, shining cross appears and comes closer and closer. And Satan crumbles to the ground. And John describes him, he was like a blubbering little child who had been told off. And then he wakes up. He realizes Jesus has the power above all others, not Satan. Starts reading the Bible, goes to church, starts seeking God. But under the midst of all of this for a month, he's under incredible demonic attack. Well, after, after about a month of this, he cries out to Jesus and saying, Lord, I can't take this anymore. I can't take these attacks anymore, Lord. And Jesus speaks to him just in his heart and says, I just needed to know that you love me. The attacks will stop now. And they did. John Ramirez now for a long time has been preaching around churches, particularly in the United States, exposing what the evil one's up to and preaching the gospel and seeing people saved. He was uh, discipled by um, David Wilkinson for several years. 
Uh, if you do want to read about his story, Out of, the, Out of the Devil's Cauldron, great book, A Journey from Darkness to Light. But let's have a look here. Um, this is the dude. If you want to have a look at that testimony I've just shared with you, it's uh, Thunder and Light Studios, I think, do the best version of it. About 7.5 million people have watched this. Just uh, take a picture of that now if you like. Look it up. Have a listen to his 30, it's about 37-minute testimony, documentary really, about his life. Take a pic of it if you'd like to have a look at that. You know, we're told in the book of Ephesians 6.10, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is what John was so aware of. And friends, what does that last phrase there say? Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, we as Christians, I think, just need to be more aware that that is the battle that we're fighting. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You know, the team's going to come back and we're going to um, have, a, have a time of, um, finish with a time of worship. But I want to open up the front here today too and just say, hey, look, it could be here today that you're thinking to yourself, I might have a bit of demonic influence. Could be in your life. Could be in your workplace. Could be at your school or your university. Could be in the club that you're connected with. Could be in your extended family. Why not get that dealt with? I remember one night at the prayer meeting um, in one of my churches in Sydney and uh, one of the ladies had a word. Uh, her name's Cheryl Timu. In fact, if any of you have my praise and worship CD, she's the lead vocalist, female lead vocalist on that. She had a word and she said, um, Lee, I believe there is a spirit of death over your life. And... Uh, one of the things that she wasn't aware of, we'd um, recently purchased a house. We knew, but she didn't. Um, the, the original owner of that house, he had hung himself in the garage, committed suicide. She'd obviously seen something in the spirit there. You know, Sue was telling me this week that um, she was in a workplace where um, there was just some stuff going on, as she puts it here. Um, <laughs> well, stuff that was clearly of the enemy. You know, and she prayed for a changing of the guard. As she walked, drove into the car park, she'd pray that. And then as she got into the car to leave home, she'd pray that again. And that changing of the guard happened. All the leadership changed in that organisation and she said a totally different atmosphere from that point. You know, prayer changes things, friends. And wherever it might be, whether it's over your personal life, whether it's your family, whether it's um, your workplace, your club, you name it, Perhaps today is a time to be set free of that. So I'm going to be offering an opportunity to come forward for prayer right now to see you set free. So um, let's be upstanding as we worship. Feel free to come forward right now. In Jesus' name. Father, I want to pray for this gathering of people this morning. We've been uh, dealing with um, a very confronting series of scriptures. And I guess as it is in this um, passage about Elijah's life. It is a very dramatic, very confronting passage. Your scriptures are loaded with challenging verses that do speak to our lives and sometimes they make us uncomfortable. Lord, I want to pray that you'd help us be a, a bunch of Christians that can surrender to you, that can cooperate with your word, that can be people who are seeking to glorify Jesus. 
Help us in this journey, Lord. And Father, right now, I want to pray for my brothers and sisters gathered in this place. For anyone who has inadvertently brought something to their house that has demonic attachment. For any person struggling with demonic attack over their life. Or it might be a friend's life or a family member. Might be something in the, the heart, the background of their family that is bringing influence. It could be, Father, something in their workplace, their school or university or a club they attend. Father, we want to see people set free. Father, we want our lives free from demonic influence so we can live as You desire us to live. We know it's a spiritual battle. We know it's ongoing. But as we address it, I hope regularly in the Name of Jesus, we can see victory. Amen.